Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gunn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Latest sales figures. Sparkling wine sales are down in 2020, but Barefoot sees 32% sales rise in the UK. Conchi Toro also sees sales increase. Updates on Brexit bureaucracy. Exciting news on wine labels from Humilla in Spain and Champagne Palme. And as ever, our wine of the week. So as we do, let's begin with our week in wine. And big news here for Matthew. He just got his vaccine. Yeah, the first shot of two. So I'm not immune yet, but felt like progress to have someone stab me in the arm with a needle. It was a very odd situation. I just received an email yesterday saying there were appointments available today. So I was like, okay, let's do it. And I got there and it's just kind of like a school gym. And the woman who gave me the jab just kind of checked my ID and then just plunged the needle in and walked away and said, come back on the 20th of April, same time. It was a really weird kind of uninvestigative situation. Well, at least they're efficient. I have to confess also in my PR world, um, most of my communications have been met with responses that are, oh, I'm not available then because I'm getting my second shot or, oh, I'm not available then because I'm getting my first shot. So I do have to agree with you that it there it is a season of hope. And it took about 10 minutes, which I was very impressed by. I was afraid I was going to be there for all afternoon. I just walked in, walked out and um, yeah, that's it. Pretty easy. COVID free. Soon. So pre-vaccine, we had a socially distanced uh, blind tasting with uh, two other individuals who are all MW hopefuls, and we tasted through a sparkling wine flight. And I have to confess, I didn't do very well. I got two correct. Uh, The other two were very off, though, I must say. Two out of four isn't bad. But we both got Kava, because you are now one of the world's leading authorities on Kava. Well, it actually wasn't Kava. It's Raventosi Blanc. And they're not part of the Kava Dio anymore. Well, as I was saying, one of the world's leading authorities on Kava, because you're working very close with the organization, so you know who is a member and who isn't. And then we had a Vouvray, which I did kind of get. Kind of hedging my bets, but I did say Chenin Blanc. And then there was... um... Riesling from Dr. Lozen. And that one, uh, I think we both got. We both called it sect. Uh, Riesling, because the questions, you had to name the grape variety, uh, name the origin, and then name the method of production. Yes, and the question also stated that the four wines were not from Champagne. It did taste like Riesling, so we got that one. And then the fourth was actually from here in California, Michael Cruz. Which I called Cremant de Jura. Of all things. Which is weird, because Sam, our friend, did too. I don't know why, because it never would have popped into my head to call a wine creme de jure. Well, to be honest, I thought it was from the grape Sauvignon. It had that sort of oxidative character that you always get from the wines of Jura. So it felt like a Jura wine, but sparkling. So I just thought I'd throw it out there, creme de jure, why not? Uh, but it was a Michael Cruz wine, so... Yep, very wrong, uh, but a very interesting wine. Yes, for me it felt like it was from a warmer climate, but it's definitely made in a very oxidative style, so it's quite unusual and hard to pinpoint for sure. So I suppose that wraps up the weekend wine for, for all of our wine nerds out there. Now, on with the news. Mm-hmm. 
Global sales figures for sparkling wine showed a fall of 8% in 2020, but not as bad as the 20-30% decline feared at the beginning of the pandemic 12 months ago. Figures were buoyed by Prosecco, which saw the smallest decline in sales, 7% compared to 17% for the more expensively priced Champagne. It is expected that within the next couple of years, sparkling wine sales will return to previous figures and increase thereafter, especially as Prosecco remains so popular. Whether people will be drinking the wines at home or in bars and events remains to be seen. Meanwhile, another inexpensive entry-level wine recorded huge increases in their on-premise sales in the UK. Barefoot, a California brand owned by industry giant Gallo, saw their UK grocery sales increase by 32%, compared to 13% for the overall wine category. Barefoot Jammy Red now has a 2.1% market share in the UK, while Barefoot Pinot Grigio sales rose by 18%. Barefoot Merlot by 33%, and Barefoot White Zinfandel also up by a whopping 33%. Also popular is Barefoot's Sparkling Pink Moscato. Another big brand which saw good sales figures is Conchi Itoro. Driven by exports, the Chilean company saw an increase in sales of 17% in 2020. The US was the main driver, with sales up by 20%, while domestically the increase was 9.9%. UK sales were also very strong, up by 23%. However, Asian sales fell due to lockdowns, 20% in general in Asia and 46% in China, which is such an important market for the Chilean wine industry. Well, commenting on the U.S. market, since that's where we're based, uh, it makes sense that you know these brands, the Barefoots, the Conchi Toros of the world, uh, they're doing quite well because it really is all about retail sales. And I think a lot of people are trying to limit you know their time in stores. And so, if you're at the supermarket, you're getting your groceries, and you can pick up a bottle of wine as well. And usually on grocery store shelves, it's these brands that are dominating. Yes, who wouldn't want a bottle of Barefoot Jammy Red? As soon as you see that on the shelf, you're picking it up. But it does also show, as you mentioned, kind of the, the trend for more inexpensive wines um, being bought during lockdown, but also those big brands as well. So Prosecco, which everyone's familiar with, rising... Barefoot, which has a lot of marketing power, and Conchitoro also, but then Champagne, more expensive, people cutting back. Maybe um, there'll be cause to celebrate before long and people will be going back to Champagne. Well, this is a little bit contrary to what we were reporting back in fall, because I think we had seen this sort of trend towards premiumization, which was very surprising during lockdown, but it was that people weren't spending their money elsewhere so they had extra disposable income and then they discovered e-commerce and so you saw this rise in premium wine categories and is that still continuing i don't know i know with champagne we saw the sales rise and towards christmas and then kind of go back down again which is not surprising that's kind of a annual trend anyway but even with uh, conchietaro some of their brands you would not consider them premium but at the same time, they're probably a little bit more expensive than people are usually um, paying for. So premiumization can just mean spending £10 rather than £5 in a bottle of wine. A brief update on the latest Brexit bureaucracy impacts on the wine trade. The British government had been planning on introducing cumbersome import forms called VI1, 
They were supposed to be introduced on the 1st of June, a date which was postponed to the 1st of July. Now that date has once again been postponed to 31st December. The news was welcomed by the wine industry, which believes the forums to be unnecessarily detailed, expensive, and time-consuming. The head of the WSTA, Miles Beal, said that the postponement, in effect, proved that the forums are not needed, as the industry is getting by fine without them. Meanwhile, tariff controversy, which does not affect the wine industry. In reactions to the UK's plans to tax global tech giants, the US government is threatening to impose 25% tariffs on certain UK products. But not wine or spirits. Still, these are signs that these trade standoffs aren't going away, as Australia says it may go to the Wine Trade Organization to appeal the massive taxes imposed on the country's wine by China, as previously reported on the pod. If you'd asked me about tariffs and import duty two years ago, I would have given you a a blank look and no answer. Now I find myself reading news articles about them all the time and getting a bit obsessed by them, which is why we've included this story that doesn't actually affect the wine industry, because these stories just keep coming up over and over again. And it's just a sign that it's quite nervy for a lot of importers and exporters about what tariffs are going to be um, effect, are going to be introduced in the future or not. It's very hard for all these industries to plan. And there's a lot of knock-on effects where um, something that's got nothing to do with your industry dramatically impacts um, your business. Well, and it's not just importers and exporters, it's producers and everyone else in the supply chain. So yes, lots of jobs affected here. And it's good. We're kind of keeping ahead of the game, I like to think, in uh, highlighting topics such as this, because who knows, it could affect the drinks business very soon. Absolutely. And that goes for the um, all this post-Brexit um, paperwork, which is being introduced or not being introduced and no one quite sure what um, the paperwork's going to look like. Is it consistent with what was proposed? Is it going to change? So again, very difficult to um, predict the future and be prepared for it. I do have a little anecdote to add there. Just in my dealings with working uh, with a PR company in the UK and trying to send samples to media and trade in other parts of the EU, I mean, it takes weeks and you must call it a gift. If you're sending wine free of cost to any EU country, call it a gift and expect it to take at least two to three weeks. To be fair, free wine is a gift. Hold on to your hats. We have exciting news on changes to wine labels. Steady now. But seriously, wine labels are important because they give the customer vital information, or at least they should. In southeast Spain, the Humea appellation where Monastrell, one of the world's greatest grape varieties. Wait, hold on now. Greatest grape varieties in the world? Yes, Monastrell is also Morvedra, and life would be um, much worse without it. I love Monastrell slash Morvedra. And, and Humea is one of the appellations where it's grown in Spain, and they've issued an update to the imagery and information used on the back labels. It's not compulsory for producers to use, but it does include an image of Monastrell's roots, the word Humea written in both Braille and Roman lettering, a pair of 4th century earrings designed to look like a cluster of grapes, a map of Spain with Humea located on it, a stamp, 
an ultraviolet authentication sticker, and the word Humia written in binary code. Wow. Well, once you get the Spanish on something, they really do it right and thoroughly, don't they? I just can't wait to see all of this on the back label. It sounds absolutely huge. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff there. But all this information does promote a brand and regional identity for an area which isn't that famous. So you can see what they're doing. And it has got us talking about Humia and Monastrel, which is a good thing. Well, let's review. We are talking about this here on Wind Up Weekly. So this is pretty much geared towards a lot of wine enthusiasts. Um, we do need to be cognizant about what this means for the consumer. Are they going to be able to decipher what all this means on the back label? Well, blind people will, because it's going to be written in Braille. I guess that's true. Meanwhile, in France... Champagne Palmer are adding a bottle ID to the back label to allow drinkers to look up information on disgorgement dates and levels of dosage. All the customer has to do is type in the code on Palmer's website or scan the QR code. The great beneficiary of COVID. I mean, we've all seen the rise of the QR code as we sit down at tables outside and the waiter coming up and asking, oh, did you see the menu? Do you know how to use a QR code? I'm like, what are we, back in the 90s? And now champagne producers are, are going with it. It's back. The QR code is back and here to stay, I believe. So anyhow, we digress. But the consumer merely has to scan the QR code and to be given access to the information. So this may seem like a little wangy thing, but I think it's actually quite important because this information should be readily available to drinkers and consumers so they can just look up a wine and learn about it immediately. Too many, and it has to be said, in France especially, the back labels just tell you absolutely no information whatsoever. But if you can look up how much sugar is in the wine, how old the wine is, when it was disgorged, that's really important information which... Not just for the customer, but also for the retailer who can uh, share that information very easily in this case. And it's not the first rodeo that these wine brands have had at the QR codes, because I joked previously with the 90s, but it really was 2010, I think, that it, you know, QR codes were kind of on the rise, and a lot of wine brands were starting to adopt it, and you saw it on fact sheet, you saw a few wine producers putting it on their back label, um, but no one really used it, so that's kind of why it faded away, I assume, um, but now it's back with COVID. And, and the rest of it. So we'll see if it's here to stay. Yeah, and when I got my vaccine shot today, I had to uh, scan a QR code to get information on the, the Pfizer vaccine. It's obligatory and um, it's very straightforward. Well, we are all very dependent on the virtual world these days. And so perhaps QR codes are the key to the future for wine consumers and just general citizens of the world. And now for our Wine of the Week, Katie, and some shameless self-promotion. What do we have? That's right, it is. It's just a little bit shameless. Uh, This wine is called Troth. It's a Cabernet Sauvignon, 2018, the inaugural vintage, from the Horse Heaven Hills in Washington State. So why is this shameless self-promotion? 
Well, it is a client of ours, and it's very exciting, really, because this is a wine from a fifth-generation farming family in the Horse Heaven Hills, which is an appellation which isn't as well-known in Washington State, and it should be, because it's uh, produced some very you know high-scoring wines in the past, and this wine really does stand up, I think. It's um, very different in style from the, the Cabernets you might find in Napa Valley, for example. Uh, but it's got incredible structure. Um, it's lean, it's mean, it's got some great bright fruit. Uh, very approachable young, but I think it's got that structure to really let it age. And the family, the Andrews family, they're behind the wine and they're an incredible group of people. They were cattle ranchers and then converted some of the land to vineyard and has been a great source of some top producers in Washington state. And they make their own wine. And now they're really, you know, producing this new label as as a way of kind of setting the bar for the Horse Heaven Hills and really putting it on the world stage as a producer of some of the finest wines in the world. Well, listen to PR Katie. You don't always get that on Wind Up Weekly. But she... Uh... She, does, she can be quite persuasive, it is true. I'm a big fan of Washington wine, and I have been for a long time. Horse Seven Hills is a huge AVA, and when I visited there, there's a lot of empty land. It's, it's, so it's quite hard to define and describe, but it's next to the Columbia River, and as the name suggests, there are hills. And so there is a little bit of more undulation rather than slopes. Uh, but it produces very very classical, very balanced, very restrained wines. My, the most famous vineyard there is the Shampoo Vineyard, which produces world-class Cabernet Sauvignon. So Horse Heaven Hills in general has that potential with a bit more kind of investment and research and just finding which uh, spots work the best. And um, we tasted this wine and um, I was quite impressed by it because it is much leaner and more restrained than a Napa Cabernet, which um, neither of us is a huge fan of. So this one is a bit more approachable, and that's how Washington wine has often been described to me. It's kind of a stepping stone from France to California, and uh, this wine really fit that bill. Yes, and the Shampoo Vineyard uh, we know very well because of Andrew Will Winery, um, and we love those wines, of course. And so this wine comes from the Andrews Family Vineyards, and it's going to be great tomorrow uh, if any of you are interested in a webinar. Uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, but Troth is going to host a webinar featuring uh, some other Cabernet heavy hitters. We've got Jamie Araujo from Achendo Cellars in Napa Valley. She'll be a panelist. And then we also have Virginia Wilcock from Vass Felix in Margaret River of Western Australia. And, you know, I, I spoke to Virginia um, kind of in preparation for the webinar, and she said something that kind of resonated with me is that, you know, Cabernet is this grape that's grown all over the world. It's so popular. But if you want to make great Cabernet, there's only a few pockets in the world that you can really do that. And a lot of it has to do with maritime influence. And so for Margaret River, you know, you have that, that ocean influence uh, right there. And then in the Horse Heaven Hills, you, you have that river. So this webinar, which actually is not tomorrow, it's today because that's when this podcast will be published. 
um, will kind of feature those different perspectives. So we'll hear from all those three producers from different corners of the world and see those differences in what it takes to craft great Cabernet Sauvignon based wines. And so we'll just, as I said, link that in the show notes and it's, it's free to join. So hope all our listeners will tune in. And I promise that's, I'm done with the PR pitch. So this wine um, is expensive. It costs $185 a bottle, which makes it one of the most expensive wines in Washington. And I think this is really going to, or the aim for this is to elevate the reputation of Washington that it can produce wines at a price point and a level of quality that competes with Napa Valley and other uh, world-class premium wine regions. And I think it does um, a really great job. It is going to be DTC only. And so this is going to be seen as an exclusive wine, and that does elevate the um, opinion of a region, I think. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening to this week's Wind Up. We'll be back in your feed next Wednesday. And in the meantime, uh, we just hope that you'll write a review, rate us, and, you know, give us your feedback. Because as we always say, we are trying to improve and we would love to hear from you. And here's to getting vaccinated. Cheerio. Mm -hmm.